This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, November 30th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today in vote certification news, two states officially cast their votes with Joe Biden in the Electoral College. Thanks for joining us on Fox 10 News at noon. And weeks after Arizonans cast their vote, the election results made official today. The Arizona Secretary of State's office certifying those results in just the past hour, giving Joe Biden Arizona's electoral votes. Also going that way, Wisconsin, the Badger State, which also describes the president's public relations strategy in these matters. And what happened, if you watched the election, I was called by the biggest people uh, saying congratulations, political people. Congratulations, sir. You just won the election. What Trump is doing by his disjointed, untruthful, hard-to-follow public pronouncements and arguments is not getting closer to redefining reality in his favor. He is, however, doing something that he never intended. He is with every development that comports with actual reality and rebuts his narcissistic version thereof. Trump gives Joe Biden a little extra burst of momentum, a little wind beneath his wings. Time and time again, another news cycle in which voters are reminded of the importance of voting for Joe Biden, the necessity of turning away Trump, telling voters, you know what, you really did the right thing. Normally, a state certifying well-known election results, that would be the kind of story covered, I don't know, only within the state mainly as like the fifth item in a newscast for 12 seconds, maybe even just as a lead-in to the news they want to get to about the latest Biden-Harris appointment. But in 2020, Wisconsin certifies Trump rants, Arizona certifies Trump raves, and the net effect is another set of signposts reminding the American people of why they should be very happy to be moving on from Donald Trump. Even the members of Trump's own party, even people who voted for him, not most of them, but many of them are just sick of this and they want to move on. And each time he says it, they like Biden or at least appreciate him a little more. So what could be happening is the normal Republican, Fox News, right wing, even very left wing side of things could be right now poisoning the ground for an impending Biden presidency, but many of those forces are just delaying their message of the day because they feel they do need to affirm that the election was legitimate. I've been worrying a little bit about what happens to a Biden presidency once the threat of Trump is removed. Does it lose its raison d'etre, its joie de vivre? Does Biden go from a man who is decent to, eh, guys, decent. 
Maybe we won't have to wonder so long as Trump is being eh, kind of a pain in the ass. He just provides every day more and more gifts to the incoming president. And I, I worry about the professional left who just wants to make the case, just is desperate to get out there and to argue that Joe Biden is being overly deferential to moderates. That's their goal in life, but they can't do it because they have to pause and say, oh my God, what Donald Trump is doing is so much worse. They want to be telling everyone who agrees with them, or at least with an earshot, we should be using this moment to swing for the fences. But how can they say that? If to the average citizen, they're not worried about shooting for the moon, they're still worried about bailing out the life raft. Donald Trump, the greatest gift, a cautious establishment, somewhat competent, unexciting, career moderate could ever get. On the show today, I actually spiel about those leftists, their objections, and how seriously to take them. But first, from an animated maniac in the White House to the Animaniacs perhaps in your house, because the three cartoon siblings were one of the more clever shows of the 90s and they were dormant for a decade, but they're back now on Hulu. The Warner Brothers, Wacko and Yakko, plus their sister Dot. So out of curiosity, I do admire the show. I requested an interview with the voice of Wacko, Jess Harnell. And in doing research into Jess Harnell, I found out that he was one of the more interesting characters that I've ever come across. Jess Harnell has had lots and lots of jobs, and he also has lots of great insight about how he gets the most out of his truly odd but also amazing skill set jess harnell aka wacko warner up next this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When Animaniacs debuted in the 90s, I was too old for it. Uh, last couple years of high school and then in college. But the thing is, I still watched it and I loved it and I respected it and I thought that it was great satire. Cut to two decades later, my kids were too young for it. Like I said, it was from the 90s, but they found it on YouTube. They memorized all the songs about the states and the countries, and we started watching it. It was amazing. And now Animaniacs is back, and Wacko Brother, one of the Warner Brothers, is here with me, Jess Harnell. What a career he's had. At first, I thought he was just wacky as Wacko. Then I started doing some research. I'll give you a visual on Jess. He looks a little like Dave Grohl meets the Ultimate Warrior from wrestling lore. <laughs> I like that one. I haven't heard that before. That's a good one. How you doing, Jess? I'm doing great, man. Usually people just think I'm a random member of Whitesnake. I like your explanation much, much better. That was very good. Yeah. I, I'm doing great, man. We're back. We're rocking it out again on Hulu, and everybody seems to dig it. And it's, uh, you know, in spite of COVID, it's, it's all pretty good, you know? When I've heard the story of how you got the voice, but before you uh, tell me that, when you come in, how often does a producer or whoever's casting you have an idea that you pitch to them, and how often does it work the other way around? When 
you get an audition, I love when they're very specific. When they say something like, you know, give me Albert Brooks, think Albert Brooks with a Southern accent, but talk a little slower, and he's 70 years old. I'm like, okay, I know what that is. When they go, he's a school teacher, and he loves his books. And you're like, that tells me absolutely nothing about what you want this person to sound like, you know? So first of all, I try to get specifics. Secondly, I try to see a picture of the character, Mike, because that immediately, if I have an idea in my head about what I'm going to do, and I, I often do, and then they say, oh, by the way, this is what he looks like. I'm like, nope, that idea is all wrong. Right. I don't know. I guess it's like vocal profiling, which is kind of, you know, profiling is no good. But with voiceover, you know, you see a picture sometimes and it totally changes your opinion on what the character is going to sound like. Um, and then I just sort of t- turn my imagination loose. And what I try to do often is I'll give them an audition that's as close as I think I can get to what they say they want. And I often will give them a second one that's nowhere near anything they're asking for because I've gotten a lot of jobs like that where they go, you know, man, we heard 25 guys basically do one thing and then you came in with this weird thing and we all laughed and we went, yeah, it's really funny. So thinking outside the box is cool. I heard the story you told of an early audition where you came in with 60 options and they took number one. Oh my God, bro. God bless you. You did do your homework, man. It was my first ever episode of a cartoon, bro. It was on a show called Darkwing Duck and I was so nervous. Oh, yeah. yeah, I got the call. I had done some stuff. I had done a bunch of voices for the Disney parks, but I hadn't done any TV cartoons yet. So I was very excited to get this. I was working with the great Jim Cummings, who's the voice of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger and is just amazing. And I really wanted to make a good impression. So the night before, I'm playing an evil space alien. That was it. He's an evil space alien. He's kind of goofy. So I made a tape with 60 different voice ideas, literally 60 of them saying a sentence each. And I walked into the session and I went up to the voice director and I said, uh, yeah, Miss McSwain, Jenny McSwain, what's her name? I said, can I, can I play this? I got some ideas. She said, sure, 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 honey, go ahead, play me something. So it comes on and I go, this is Jess Arnell, voice number one. And I went, hello, my name is Bleeb and I'm the alien. And she goes, yeah, that's really funny. Do that. And I went, wow, I'm overthinking the <laughs> hell out of this. So that was, the, <laughs> that was the last time I ever came in with 60 ideas. Now I just sort of fly by the seat of my pants. If we listened to the other 59, would they have found uh, a voice or a life in some of the hundreds and hundreds of characters you've done over the years? Again, that's a, that's a great a great question because you just hit it on the head. You know, I mean, I don't remember to tell you the truth because that was so long ago, and I forget voices I did two days ago. Literally, I, I I did five voices on a video game last week. I couldn't do any of them right now. If you asked me to, I'd be like, I have no idea. You got to play it for me, and then I hear it. But what you hoped for, to do with voice acting, and for any of your listeners who you know who would like to be voice actors, because it is a great gig, and and it's a gig worth looking into. It's not about doing funny voices. It's about creating believable characters using your voice. And that's an important distinction. It's an important different way to look at it. And putting life into them, as you say, is so crucial. Because if you can just make funny sounds, I mean, that's great. But, you know, you got to be able to have a conversation. You got to be able to project different emotions and not trying to make it more serious than it is. But when I know I have a character down, even if it's you know, sometimes a celebrity impression. It's when I can have a conversation with you, Mike, as that guy with no script and know how to respond as that character. And then mm-hmm. I'm like, I can, now I got it. You know what I mean? Right, right. You'd know what to say and you'd know, you know, Chili wouldn't say that or wouldn't say it this way. Absolutely. And you know, Chili, you got to be careful because Chili, there's little kids watching, so you got to watch your step. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's the stuff that Chili says is not the stuff that would fly on Comedy Central, for instance, you know? 
Who's Chili based on? Chili is a Doc McStuffins character. Chili is sort of based on, you know, there was uh, yeah, Doc McStuffins, which I love that show, Mike, because it gave kids some courage when they got sick or had to go to the doctor. So I was very happy. I like doing stuff that's positive, man. I like I like doing things that make the world a little bit happier instead of bringing the world a little bit more down, especially in a year like this one. He's sort of based... When there was a movie called Casper the Friendly Ghost, uh, uh, you know, years ago, mm -hmm. and my buddy Brad Garrett, he did the voice of this character named Fatso. Right. right. And they replaced Brad for the TV show, and they called me and they said, hey, man, do you want to take a crack? We know you can do sort of a Brad Garrett impression. Uh, we're replacing him on the show. And I said, well, you know what? I don't, want to take, uh, I don't want to take Brad's gig. Let me call him and make sure it's okay. And they go, oh, he gave us your number. And I said, really? So I called him to make uh, sure. And I went, yeah, just wait a second, Jesse. It's me, Brad. You can go ahead and do it. You know, and I started doing so. So, 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 so Chili's like a, a more friendly sort of round version of Brad Garrett, you know? And it's like, that's what it all yeah. is. It's, it's, it's sort of like mathematics. You know, you take a little of this and a little of that, and it adds up to a character, you know? Right. So Wacko is a version of, you found, you did a tweak on John Lennon. I right? did, man. Your facts, dude, listen, you should, you know, you should have a show, bro. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. You should get a show because your research is impeccable. I, I did. That's exactly what happened. And, and it kind of relates back to the previous story and the ending of it involving Steven Spielberg is a happy ending because, you know, I heard, okay, new show, Animaniacs, big show, Steven Spielberg, you know, you want to get on this show. So come in, pick three characters. So I came in and they had all these characters laying on the floor. I remember this. And I said, well, this one, I like him because his name is Wacko and he doesn't wear pants. And I thought those are two things in his favor right there. So I said, I'm going to read for that. Read for it, did something funny, have no clue what it was. I wish I had that original audition tape. It'd be really fun to hear it. Um, and I got called in for a callback. Now, when I did that, Andrea Romano, who was the voice director and is one of the best voice directors of all time and one of the most esteemed of all time and so creative and smart. And she said, hey, I know you do a lot of impressions. And I said, yeah. She said, why don't we try some you know, impressions as wacko? And I said, okay, who, who do you want to do? She said, let's do Elvis. And we did. And that would have been a very different show. Because it would have been like, hello, nurse, you know, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Indianapolis, Indiana, Columbus. It would have been a whole other kind of situation. So we did that. And then she said, well, what about trying the Beatles? Now, I love the Beatles, so I was, like, too excited. I'm like, yeah, well, which one do you want? And she said, uh, she said, well, don't they all basically sound kind of the same? And I go, no, 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 you know, because first of all, you got John and John's voice to me always sounded like it was based in his nose and there was a point on the end of it, like an arrow or something, you know? So I did that, and then I said, and then you got Paul, and Paul's voice is more, like, round and friendly and very chipper and very, hey, how's it going? Great, okay, fantastic, and all that. <laughs> then, there's, then there's George, and George, to me, always sounded like he was getting over a cold and he also spoke very slowly and his words were very measured, you know. And then there's Ringo, and Ringo's down here at the bottom going, peace and love, peace and love, yellow submarine. And so she said, she said, why don't you do John Lennon? So I said, okay. So I started doing it. I'm like, oh, Dr. Scratch and stuff, I don't feel so well. And she showed me a picture of Wacko. She goes, oh, by the way, we have a picture. And she showed it to me, and I go, oh, so he's little. Because I didn't, I'd never yeah. seen a picture. See, and and she goes, she goes, yeah. I go, well, he can, you know, I don't want him to sound like a grown man if he's a little guy. She said, well, what are you gonna do? I said, I'll just give him some helium and take him up here, and next thing you know, he's wacko. And and what was great about it is so many other people, dude, everybody, Mike, everybody read for that show, as you can imagine. And they brought the top five, their top five choices into Stephen, and they're playing them for him. And they didn't get people's names. They just said this number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. I think I was number three in the Wackos. Mm -hmm. And God bless the other guys. And I'm sure they were unbelievably talented folks. But they were all sort of doing that. Hey, Wacko, I'm crazy and I'm Wacko. You know, and do whatever they were doing. And all of a sudden I come and I go, you know, oh, Delta, scratch and sniff. I don't know what we're going to do. And he, he, Stephen, apparently from what I heard, he laughed out loud and went, 
that is really funny. I want to get that guy. And that's all it was. He heard one line. But it because it was so weird and non sequitur that that he bought it. You know what I mean? So Steven is Steven Spielberg, who somehow knows something about casting and has a good good gut reaction. Is his imprimatur, is that was that very important in getting the show rebooted? Dude, you know what, man? I, I, it, it was obviously, I'm sure it was very important to to the buyers, the networks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a funny thing you might not know, Mike, is that Steven actually went to every pitch. And that can you imagine these network execs who are getting pitched all day like, okay, we got a reality show called Who's Cooking the Soup? And it's going to be two guys making soup. And, at the end, and all of a sudden they walk into the pitch room and there's, <laughs> and there's, you know, there's Steven going, hi. So yeah, I want to bring this back. And they're like, it's Steven Spielberg, you know? So uh, he, he's been involved every single step of the way. And to tell you the truth, he was instrumental in our coming back because first of all, God bless him. He he didn't, as Rob Paulson, who plays Yakko on the show, he has a funny thing he says where he goes, yeah, you know, they could have easily gone and gotten Peter Dinklage to play the brain and Russell Brand to play Pinky, um, you know, and done celebrity stunt casting. But Steven went, well, you know, we're using the original people and we're not going to do it. So that was really, really kind of him to do that. Um, but he, he was so involved when they told us we were going to do it. Our first question was, well, who's on the team? And they said, well, Steven is absolutely involved in every episode. And by, man, he so was, bro. He he approved every script, every song, every animation. He looked at everything. So we all kind of went, okay, we know it's not going to suck, right? Then we had to meet the whole new team behind the scenes. And again, we're like, well, you know, this is, we, we love this show, man. We, we don't want to see this land in the wrong hands. You know, it's like, a, it's like a part of our family, you know, but the new guys, they get it and they're funny and they're fast and they're topical. And I've always said that, you know, Animaniacs is a satire, is an adult satire masquerading as a children's cartoon. And they get that and they write it as such. And, and, and it's working. I pretty- mean, Edward Snowden shows up. Dude, what episode. the hell was I know? Can you believe that? I couldn't my believe that. My jaw dropped and I was expecting that clang classic cartoon <laughs> sound effect. <laughs> Cartoon Craig, I know, man. I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> and it's also been updated that, first of all, I think Dot used to be cute, but now she has wit, right? Yep. They wanted to show there was more to her than being cute, and I think that's very cool. Right. And now they're, um, not, of course, you still have baloney in your slacks, but you guys are gender neutral and ethnically diverse, uh, as mentioned in the theme song. Yeah, gender balanced, pr- pronoun neutral and ethnically diverse. The trolls will there say we're so passe, but we did meta first. Ah! Yeah, I mean, there were some updates in there. I knew we were going to have to get rid of the Bill Clinton playing the sax thing, but but the rest of it right. was a surprise to me. But again, they're just, like I said, there are so many moments, and you've alluded to them, Mike, and God bless you for it, but you know, that you're watching this thing and you're like, this isn't for kids, is it? You know, it looks like it's for kids and it sounds like it's for kids and kids like it. And and my favorite, my single favorite thing about it, man, at its essence, if you ask me, you know, in one sentence, what's my favorite thing about Animaniacs coming back? It's the idea of people who watched it then watching it now with their kids. That's it. That's that to me just makes me so freaking happy, you know, but what's great about it is it still works on both levels and it's going to, the adults are going to laugh and the kids are going to laugh. Yeah. So I would say this is what I love about it, that there used to be a time in comedy where all, not all, it was a hard thing to do, but the main thing that comedy had to do was tear down. And this is where you got a lot of slobs versus snobs comedy and the the gleeful chaos of the Animaniacs fit right into that. But now we've maybe evolved a little bit and maybe we think that there are some things that shouldn't be torn down, but also some things that should be respected. And somehow the Animaniacs still strike that balance between having a 
reverence, but also not being cruel, but also being silly enough in these times that you could really go for it and not have too many sacred cows. Again, a very astute observation. And you're damn right, because, you know, there's a fine line between being funny and being cruel. And, you know, this this you'll probably you'll probably get a kick out of this. They approached us uh, long before the reboot happened, about eight years ago. The three of us, Rob, Tress and myself, who played Yakko, Wacko and Dot, were all approached individually to reprise the voices on an adult cartoon. Now, it's an adult cartoon that we've all done voices for. Very funny. It's great. We've all worked on all the Cartoon Network stuff and the Comedy Central stuff. Mm -hmm. I have no problem doing that. But they're like, okay, this is going to be, hey, it's really funny, guys. Whatever happened to the Animaniacs, right? And what basically is going to go down is Yakko is a drug dealer, and he's really high on coke, which is why he talks so fast. And Wacko is going to be up in the water tower with an AK-47 knocking people off, and Dot's going to be a hooker, and it's going to be this really funny thing, and blah, blah, blah. And here's the amount of money we're going to give you, and it'll be so cool to get you guys together. And I, I looked at it, and I, I called my agent, and I said, you know what, I'm going to pass on it. And she goes, really? And I said, yeah. She goes, how come? I, she said, it's good money. I said, yeah, I know that, but you know what? I love Wacko, and I know he's just a cartoon, but if... In my heart of hearts, I want to believe that he's at the cartoon retirement home having a great time and there's an all-you-can-eat buffet every day and he's living it up and he's as happy as a little guy can be. That's where I don't want to think of him in a tower hurting people and I don't want to think of the others like yeah. that either. Well, what was amazing is Rob and Tress also individually both said no the same day. So we have a high regard for these characters. It was never about them being mean. What I think you'll find, it's a common thread, is they only go on offense after somebody has proven they are worthy of going on offense against. You know what I mean? Like they take down the entitled. They take down the people who believe they are smarter and better than other people. And they do it in a funny, funny way. But we all come across people like that who could stand to have maybe the wind taken out of their sails a little bit. I mean, look at the entitlement that rages around us, you know? And you're like, man, nobody's better than anybody else. And I think people who think that they are could use the Animaniacs, you know? And... Going with the premise that when you have an interesting person on the line, keep letting them be interesting. We have decided to break this interview into two parts. And, and this will be a tease for the ages. Remember how we just tossed off an idea of a Southern septuagenarian Albert Brooks? Well, tomorrow I force him to produce that. And he does so right before your ears. That is tomorrow with Jess Harnell once again on The Gist. And now, before the spiel, it's Remembrances of Things Trump. For this, the first remembrance of Trump during the Christmas season, we bring you our president's conversation with a seven-year-old on Christmas Eve 2018. A young girl from South Carolina was on the line, and Donald Trump delicately inquired into her belief in the jolly man from the North Pole. Are you still a believer in Santa? Because at seven, it's marginal, right? Here is Coleman Lloyd's end of the exchange. This is real. Her family was recording it. And we'll play them both together in conversation. We'll probably put out some cookies and then we're, ha we're hanging out with our friends. So that's pretty much all. Well, that's very good. Well, you just have a good time. Yes, Are sir. Are you still a believer in Santa? Yes, sir. Because at seven, it's marginal, right? Yes, sir. Elliker Catcher, you guys say hi to Mr. President. Now, Coleman Lloyd later told her local newspaper, The Post Courier, quote, I was like, wow, I was shocked. It wasn't really nerve wracking. I just had to think of what the truth was when asked about 
if her belief in Santa is marginal. Lloyd had, at that point, never heard the word marginal. The president's introduction of the idea of believing in Santa Claus being marginal was apparently lost on young Coleman. But her guiding spirit about Santa Claus, quote, I just had to think of what the truth was. That is indeed a lesson to us all. And this has been a remembrance of things Trump. And now the spiel. The left is quite upset with some of Joe Biden's picks for cabinet positions and key advisors, and the reasons are twofold. One, they are the left, and two, the picks in question aren't. But the particular arguments against so many of the candidates are quite thin, or if you're the left, extremely compelling. So there are a few candidates who've actually been announced or who were rumored who actually do have long track records of centrism that would certainly disappoint you if you were a committed socialist. But when it comes to someone like Rahm Emanuel or especially Neera Tandon, it seems not so much a policy as style that irks groups like the Justice Democrats and the Democratic Socialists of America. Fine, it's not worth delving into what Neera Tandon said in a 2010 C-SPAN interview and if that reflected her endorsement or just a possible description of what chained CPI is. I am sparing you from that. You're welcome. But let's take the case of Cedric Richmond. So he was chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, congressman from Louisiana, and the Biden administration certainly needs a liaison with Congress. He was appointed as an advisor. Just about everyone in Democratic circles clapped, but not in far-left circles. The Sunrise Movement, for instance, which is affiliated with the Justice Democrats and the DSA, put out a press release, quote, Cedric Richmond hire is betrayal due to big oil ties and silence on pollution in his district. They say Richmond, quote, cozied up to big oil and gas and stayed silent and ignored meeting with organizations in his own community while they suffered from toxic pollution and sea level rise. So the details are apparently, and this is from a Guardian story, a couple of constituents who are campaigning against a local chemical plant met with Richmond, did meet with Richmond, but only for a couple of minutes. He took a picture. They were smiling. He moved on. And then they met with an aide for longer. Richmond, by the way, is no sea level rise apologist. He is in fact one of 11 co-sponsors of a resolution, HR 5102, the Coastal Resilience Research and Education Act. Contrary to the idea that he's dismissive of the problem of sea level rise, this act directs the NOAA to dedicate resources to, quote, research and education on the impact of sea level rise, coastal flooding, or shoreline erosion. The environmental group Earth Forums, they give ratings for all members of Congress and in rating This member of the Louisiana delegation, lone among all the members of the Louisiana delegation, a Democrat, they write, Congressional District 2, Cedric Richmond, represents this district, which includes most of New Orleans, with a view that largely favors addressing climate change. Cedric Richmond has a fairly good record of voting in support of efforts on climate change in Congress. He's a -a one-of-a-kind example in Louisiana. But he's not perfect because he has taken money from oil companies. Why? Maybe because oil companies employ thousands of people in his district. This means to the left he is sullied and should not served. It is in fact a betrayal. You heard the word. David Sirota, the progressive writer and former Bernie Sanders communications staffer, was on NPR over the weekend articulating what he thinks qualifies as disqualifications. Asked specifically about his opposition to the quite qualified Cedric Richmond, who is a leader of and a bridge to the African-American community, Sirota said this. I reject this idea that, that you have to make that choice. I mean, there are a lot of people of color 
who have decided not to have close ties with the oil and gas industry. There are a lot of people of color who've decided to not sell out to corporate America. There are a lot of people of color who have taken jobs uh, in the nonprofit sector, in the, in the labor movement, as just examples. So the idea that you can only find a diverse cabinet by going to corporate America and plucking people out of Wall Street and putting them into jobs to do economic policy is insulting to lots and lots of people who have chosen a different career path. Sirota there was misstating the premise and doing so on his terms. The question isn't whether it's necessary to have corporate experience to work in the Biden administration, because several of his appointees do not. The question was whether corporate experience is a disqualification. And Sirota, with his framing of selling out to corporate America, indicates that it is. And yet, isn't experience within a large structure in the private sector somewhat transferable to the public? It also just contradicts what you and I know of human experience or American experience circa the 21st century. Think about most of the progressive people you know. Maybe you are one of them. Have you ever had a job? Have they ever had jobs in the corporate world, which is where many, if not most, jobs were? I'd say barista counts, right? The ones, the progressives I often know, are lawyers or were lawyers or did work for corporations or do, and they still have their beliefs and they still donate and act on their beliefs professionally sometimes, personally all the time. They're not sellouts, which is a technical term, of course. To work for a corporation is to be a sellout. And then we all move out of the freshman dorm and realize that maybe life is complicated and, by the way, demanding, and it takes a fair amount of money to navigate through it successfully. Under the working for a corporation is selling out rubric, I want you to know that Barack Obama could still qualify for appointment, but Michelle Obama could not because she was an associate at the law firm Sidley Austin, where she worked on teams that represented AT&T and Union Carbide. But of course, Michelle Obama did not like that work. She left. Right now in corporate America, there are wonderfully qualified people who would love to be an asset to their country and government. And right now in the public service sector and in government right now, there are also such people. And guess what? Members of all these groups are being appointed to the Biden cabinet. Now, I understand who David Sirota is. He's a person for whom the ends, which is a progressive agenda, justify the means, by which I mean exaggeration and not the strictest adherence to the truth. He believes or professes to believe that Joe Biden is intent on killing Social Security. As of this afternoon, his Twitter feed was topped with this retweet. I don't think you all understand the extent to which The minute Joe Biden won the primary, Social Security was gone. They're privatizing that shit for sure. We're not retiring. So maybe Sirota's scorched earth tactics are to be understood as just that, tactics. But they aren't atypical of the left. Now, I fear the exaggerations and inaccuracies will be more tiresome than crippling to the Biden agenda. But I also have a genuine wonder if it has to be this way, if leveling the loudest, most out there charges really does advance the cause of these self-described progressives. I mean, you know, left's gonna left, progressive's gonna progressive, far away from the center's gonna do what they do, and this is usually what they do. But is it always the right way? I mean, maybe I'm showing my moderation by thinking, I don't know, if you just kind of talk to the people inside the camp and make your make your feelings known, it could have quite a positive effect. And by yelling so loudly about the horrors of Cedric Richmond, maybe you're, I don't know, embarrassing yourself. But really, can a measure of good sense and restraint be used? Cedric Richmond, a betrayal? 
Biden to privatize Social Security? Private sector experience a sellout? Come on. When you're trying to convince people who aren't already on your side, I do think you have to make a stronger argument. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist at this point in her life. Belief in restraint and good sense, well, that's marginal. We had help once more from Lori Galaretta, but you may recognize her as the voice of Bill Fettuccini in The Secret of Monkey Island Special Edition. No, how about Jim the Janitor from DJ and the Fro? Alicia Montgomery goes by executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but if you're a fan of the grim adventures of Billy and Mandy, you might recognize her as singer Dorco or Snake. No, what about Biker Mice from Mars, where she played Ronaldo Rump, narrator, and Goo, the gist. Or you may hear us as Tony Clownarelli Jr. Or from Kangaroo Jack, Good Day USA, dude number two. No, how about Ratchet and Clank Future Quest for Booty, where we played Smuggler and Parrot. Okay, all those roles were voiced by Jess Harnell, but he assures me he has forgotten most of his past role, so I figure I would steal his thunder a little bit and see if I could get any gigs. Hey, I'm Tony Clownarelli Jr. Nothing. He's doing nothing for you, is it? Boom, poo, and thanks for listening.